Welcome, guys, to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. A quick, quick reminder, because I never do it. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, do remember we are on all other podcast providers. And if you are listening on iTunes or another podcast provider, we are on YouTube if you do want to see um, Eric Helms in real life or not in real life on your screen. <laughs> so um, I am here again with Eric Helms. We're doing another Q&A. He has been happy enough to be our Q&A slave for another episode. Um, and I'm going to throw some great questions at him. Um, but first of all, Eric, what's going on with you? Anything you want to update the listeners on? Um, I've actually noticed you've been a bit more active on your Instagram, which has been really cool. I recently saw a great kind of demonstration of bent over row, a movement a lot of people get wrong. And I think it's brilliant seeing people like yourself who people basically trust and respect you for good reason. And so when you put out a video like that, people actually take it well on board, which is really refreshing. Yeah, that was, um, I was surprised at how much people I gave me some pushback on that though. There's a lot of good comments. Don't, don't get me wrong, but some people were like, well, what about people who don't do it that way? And I was like, I, I don't, this isn't about whether people are doing it this way and are successful. I'm just saying, Maybe you should not reduce your range of motion purposely and then drive your hips into the bar at the top when the bar, when it's actually the hardest part of the lift and probably putting the most tension on your lats. So insert any name. And if they're doing that, I, that's how I feel about it. So, but no, it was, it was good. It was good. I've, um, I've been really enjoying trying to, uh, be more consistent on there and trying to give a lot more practical information. So I've been here and there filming clips of me training in the gym. And also there's just a ton going on. So like, like you asked, um, the women's book that, uh, Lyle oh, yeah. uh, wrote that I helped him with, um, we just looked at the first month and we've raised a little over 12 K for uh, the women's sports foundation, which is awesome. So we're pretty happy about that. So the, the, the $5 pink tax that we tacked on is, uh, went to them, which we're pretty stoked about. Um, other cool stuff. Um, we just got NASM, uh, CEU provider certified for mass, uh, for the folks in the UK, you're like, I don't know what that is, but for in the States, that's quite a big certifying body for, for personal trainers. So, um, hopefully we're trying to make more value people who subscribe for mass to make it well worth their while and help them in their careers as trainers. So that's kind of the stuff that's just going on in the recent, recent days. Um, so yeah. And then always heaps going on in the background. So, well, that's yeah. Super exciting. I know mass is it's almost a year old now. Is it coming to its year? Exactly. We're going to have a pretty big promotion uh, next month when we have our uh, one-year anniversary, which I cannot believe it's been a year looking back on it. It feels like it's been like three weeks or something. So, I mean, time flies. And I have to say, even from the first kind of additions that were coming out to now coming out, like the improvements you've made and the kind of the feedback that you've had and taken on board has been great because I think that's what makes it's such a great thing to receive because you're actually seeking what people want to hear about and also how they want to receive it. Um, so no, I think if people are thinking about getting on mass, like have a look at what's being released in the next few weeks and, uh, yeah, see if you want to hop on board. Cause I definitely recommend it. Thanks man. I appreciate that. Uh, so anyway, uh, without further ado, we will get on to the Q and a, and the first question is from, uh, Basilis Papadakis, who has asked, um, ways to detect overreaching. That's a, the, the, an awesome name. Yeah. I mean, I, I just envision a gladiator asking me a question right now. And, uh, I want to ask you questions about how <laughs> did you look so good in my mind wearing the half mask and, and being shirtless. So, uh, anyway, no, in all seriousness, um, 
Yeah. So overreaching is an interesting concept, you know, and it's basically that point at which you're doing more work than is productive uh, in the short or long term, depending on what type of overreaching it is. In the literature, you'll see functional and non-functional overreaching thrown around. So functional overreaching is one where once you have done a taper or a deload, uh, you're actually able to increase performance afterwards. Uh, non-functional is where the taper or deload is not enough and you're still underperforming. So you probably just just went a little too hard. Um, now, I didn't answer the question directly because one thing I would like the person to consider is that do you need to be even functionally overreaching um, and is that always beneficial? Because I think it's it's very difficult to, to get a that quote unquote super compensation effect or that performance boost when you've been in a under recovered state for a while. So, you know, if you do overreach at all, especially for performance, let's say a power lifter, um, it shouldn't be too extreme. Um, you shouldn't see massive drops in performance leading up to a meet in my opinion, um, because you may not be able to recover it in time and your actually ability to produce overload is going to be hindered. So you're, theoretically you're like, well, I'm still training hard, even though I'm using lower loads and it's beating me up and I'm feeling terrible. It's like, well, are you actually producing overload if that's the case? And maybe your fatigue is going high and your fitness is actually starting to fall or stay where it is, you know? So it's really only going to be a, uh, overreaching positive effect if theoretically, and I have these two bars that I'm going to use with my hands to show for the YouTube viewers, if fatigue is going up and fitness is going, then once fatigue drops, then you will have an excess of uh, fitness compared to where you were. However, if fatigue's going up and fitness is staying the same, that's really just not helpful, you know? And I think many times that's what's actually happening. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of conclusive data showing that overreaching is actually beneficial for uh, strength and, and certainly not for hypertrophy. And that's not because nail in the coffin it definitely doesn't work for hypertrophy, just that we don't have data on that. So um, if your performance is going down, uh, week to week, consistently workout to workout, um, that is okay in the short run if we're talking about like no more than 5%, it's a decent kind of rule of thumb. If it is more than that uh, and it's consistent and you know it's not due to some other external factor like um, poor nights of rest or uh, you're deep into a diet or something like that or you're sick, um, then that's probably an indication that the way you were training is not um, ideal. And then you need to tone, tone things back in terms of either, well, you need to tone back total training stress. There's a lot of ways to get there, whether that's load or volume or, or the frequency at which you ex expose yourself to that stress. But um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's the overall, the, the biggest, the most obvious sign is, is a consistent decline in performance. So that might take um, two or three sessions of doing the same movements. That's clear. So that might be, depending on how you train, uh, one to three weeks of, of, of seeing that occur. Um, other signs might be um, interrupted sleep, uh, a lack of motivation to train, um, lingering soreness that seems a little out, out of character for what you're used to, um, being grumpy and just being annoyed with people or angry. All those things are, are decent signs, but I think the big one should probably be performance. Mm -hmm. No, brilliant. And I think um, when, when thinking about those things that you've just reeled out at, for myself, I've definitely noticed times where that has happened, um, where I have kind of noticed our performance is maybe level. Um, and then I'm like, I could be grumpy, really tired, like actually hunger. I find 
for me, I get hungry when I seem to be in that kind of fatigue state. But I know, I think I've heard that a symptom can be like people have poor hunger, um, but definitely yeah. poor sleep and things like that. Um, and what you, when you talked about kind of whether or not we want to do it and kind of do we see that super compensation effect for like strength or hypertrophy, whatever it might be in that scenario, it reminded me of kind of aggressive depletions before then peaking for like a bodybuilding show. And the theory kind of is there, but in practice, does it always work out? Um, and sometimes the, and I, I myself tried both approaches in my last contest prep and I kind of, I ended up siding with not trying to do the aggressive deplete and then mm. aggressive load just because it just didn't seem worth the potential downsides that were associated yeah. with it. Um, I don't know if there's any sort of relation there. I guess it's that same kind of gas principle um, from hand style, but um, I guess it comes down to the individual and whether or not it's worth it to them to try it. But uh, as you've said, it's definitely not something you have to do. Exactly. It's it's one of those situations where you're looking at an uneven um, risk to reward ratio. You know, um, if it does work, the likelihood that it'll be better than something more conservative. I mean, it's not much. You know, I've I've yet to see someone consistently step on stage. I'm sorry, step on the platform as a powerlifter. Um, and I've seen a lot of powerlifters over the years and get big PBs on all three lifts. You know, like a good day for a powerlifter is uh, getting a PB on like an average good day, like a consistent good day. So I got um, a PB on my total and then one or two lifts uh, were, were, were PBs from training. And then the other one I was able to roughly maintain. That's a fantastic day. And that's um, if you can do that even more than 50% of the time, you've really got your taper dialed in, in my opinion. Um, but I mean, and I, I've seen that achieved without doing crazy overreaching. Um, and I've not seen anyone consistently get, I got a PB on all three lifts and total. Uh, and I do that seven out of 10 times because I overreach. I, I don't see that. Like it, as far as I know, that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So, um, clearly that the difference in the real world is not enough to warrant the risk of going into your meat still fatigued and overreached and unable to perform even as normal as you would in training. So yeah, I look at it that way. It's like, you know, what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose and play the numbers game? Like, unless you're only going to do one meet in your entire life, there's no reason to, to, to bet the farm on it. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great answer. Um, we'll move on to the next question, which is from Socrates and Oh, I can't do the last name, but again, a, a great first name, at least from Socrates. It's amazing. So um, he has asked, I would like Eric um, to answer whether there is importance to carb timing when refeeding. He said, I mean, it's better to spread out carb intake into four to five meals, or can you just have two extra large meals um, and have no carbs in the other meals? So yeah, carb distribution for refeeding, does it matter? Yeah, well, hey, this is amazing. We've got the great philosopher and we had a gladiator ask questions now. So um, you have the best followers. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think for the large, in the example given there, you know, two big feedings or four to five smaller feedings on a, what I'm assuming would be a refeed day. That's the kind of the most common way that it'd be, be implemented. Probably doesn't matter. Um, and the main reason is that the more you eat, the slower your digestion becomes. So, um, 
you're also going to have some fat and some protein on this day, right? Um, and that means if you're going to, you, you, unless you're actually just spreading your fat around and having like fat and protein meals only and then having two large carb feedings, um, then, then I, I guess that wouldn't be the case. But assuming you are also having commensurate larger fat intakes in these two meals versus four smaller fat intakes in, in your four meals, that's going to substantially slow your digestion time. Even if you have a high carb, low fat kind of refeed schedule, like let's say you're taking in 400 grams of carbs, 50 grams of fat. Um, if you take in 200 grams of carbs and 25 grams of fat in a meal, that's going to take a long time to digest. Um, unless you like, it was like Skittles and oil, you know, um, don't do that. <laughs> so if you're eating like whole foods that are, have a, have a normal fiber profile, um, and you're spreading your fat around, I don't think it'll make much of a difference because the digestion time will extend itself so much that you're going to get those carbs hitting your system throughout the day, just like you would if you'd had four, four meals. Um, you know, so a big meal like that might take seven or eight hours to digest fully and you'll be getting those, those carbohydrates titrated into your system. Um, so it's, you know, I understand the reason why he asked the question, you know, if we're looking to get the signaling that comes from eating a high carb intake for the day, we don't want to have it all at once because we know there is probably a time component also and a magnitude component to, uh, reversing some of the adaptations that have from, happened from a diet. Um, but it's not a big effect anyway from a refeed that's only 24 hours. You know, like when you look at some of the effects from refeeding, it looks like maybe 48 to 72 hours is what it takes to actually get a nice little boost um, that, that you, you you would get outside of just eating more and having TEF go up. So, um, you know, that's why I personally like to refeed for that long. You know, I start with 48-hour refeeds and sometimes I throw a third one in the day or uh, I know Berto even tried, I think, 72 hour refeeds this prep uh, for a period. So um, we've seen what we, what, we've, what we believe is better better outcomes from that than just a 24 hour period. Um, 24 hours is certainly useful in that you're out of a deficit, you're replenishing glycogen, it's a nice break. Um, you're probably gonna, it's probably gonna be one of the few days you have regularity in terms of um, using the toilet if you've been uh, calorie restricted for a while. So there's definitely still benefits from 24 hour refeeds. It just might not be as useful for reversing dietary adaptations uh, than, uh, than doing a longer period. So overall, I would say no, not a big difference. I wouldn't stress it. Cool. No, yeah, fantastic answer. And I know even La McDonald in his original flexible dieting handbook, he kind of had the shorter refeeds or, or maybe it was actually in Ultimate Diet 2.0 where he had that shorter refeeding schedule. I can't completely remember which. Oh, no. Yeah, it was. he had... Yeah, he had the eight hour and then the, and then the twenty four hour. Yeah, um, and he's kind and of. I think back. now, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's changed that too. Like, he's definitely of the opinion that you want you you probably need a forty eight hour refeed. I think yeah. that's most of that's coming from the angle of looking at what starts to reverse the hormonal cascade that typically results in amenorrhea in women, uh, and seeing that there's there was a study where women, average size women were eating like 5,000 calories in one day and it didn't reverse it, but eating maintenance calories for two days did seem to. So, you know, that, that's, the, that's kind of evidence of that time component. That's really interesting actually. I think that's something people should really take away is the, there's the kind of the time and the quantity as well. So no, that's really cool. Yeah. And uh, he had a second question to that. And I'm glad you kind of associated the first one with contest prep because this one was with contest prep saying, um, what about tracking vegetables during contest prep? Is that something you do? Yeah, if you eat it, track it. That's pretty much the way I look at it. Um, I mean, vegetables don't have a, a huge calorie. Well, it depends on the vegetable, really. Like, 
corn's a vegetable, you know. So, um, like, but yeah, I think I think tracking vegetables makes sense because typically what happens is the proportion of vegetables you eat goes up throughout prep um, to deal with satiety and to deal with the fact that you might be going from, let's say, average male, uh, 275 grams of carbohydrates to start down to maybe 150 at the end of prep. You know, and to make that feel like a decent amount of food, typically you'll go from like one to two servings of veg to three to four at the end. I think that's a pretty common thing you might see. Um, so, you know, each serving of veg might only be like 20 to 50 calories at most. But that's so 40 to 100 calories at the start of prep, contributing to your diet to twice that at the end. And that can make a difference. Um, and I find that the people who don't track veg, it goes more up than half because it doesn't count in their brain. So they're like, they're starving and I don't have to track my veg, so I'm going to have some broccoli. So I would say that um, while it is a small contributor to your total calories, it ends up getting out of hand if you don't track it uh, because, shit, I've seen people have 10 pieces of gum in a day. I've, had, I've seen people drink so much water they're getting lightheaded because they put flavor in it and they need something. I've seen people drink Walden Farms. I've seen people uh, have like fiber one as, as, as a snack. I've seen all kinds of weird shit, man. So um, I think it's important to count everything and have some kind of objective limits. Like I typically go no more than two diet sodas a day, uh, no more than one serve of uh, like a dietary sauce. Um, and then I, then I go, you know, no more than... And, and I actually I track vegetables and fruit. Those are like the big ones just to keep you from getting weird behaviors that do stuff like wash out your electrolytes, overload you on caffeine when you don't realize it from diet soda, uh, mess up you up with a whole bunch of sugar alcohols or, or, or way too much fiber, et cetera. Um, so those are all things to try to keep normalized to some degree so that your hunger doesn't drive you to do odd stuff. No, I... I definitely have, I mean, some of those, I'll be, I'm laughing at those stories because I can definitely relate to that. And people just do weird stuff to try and stay satiated during contest prep. And um, I think it's interesting you said about the 10 pieces of gum because I found I, I basically every day I'd have to put in a packet of gum within my macros because I knew I'd get through it. Um, it was just like a, a weird habit and you just end up piling in more and more. And if I didn't track that, I could easily have had like maybe three, four packets just to try and keep my mouth busy. Um, on a related note, because you kind of talked about it, the fact that vegetables are low calorie, they contain fiber, and we know fiber contains fewer calories per gram than what carbohydrates do. Do you take that into consideration? Do you kind of take fiber away from your carb intake? Do you go into that complicated kind of math, or do you have a simpler solution for people, Eric? Yeah, I just count it all as carbs, because not because they all are four calories per gram, indeed they're not. Um, you know, depending on the type of fiber, it may be nothing and it goes right through you, or it could be one to three calories per gram, uh, depending on how much and how well it's digested in the large intestine by the bacteria that's there, which then gives you short chain fatty acids. Um, so yeah, I, I think as a useful heuristic is you keep your fiber intake relatively static, uh, and then you simply count it as carbohydrate and practically it doesn't end up making a difference. You just, some people, depending on whether they don't track fiber or do track fiber, they'd have oh, I eat 250 grams of carbs, or oh, I eat 220 grams of carbs. Like, okay, well, in the, in the end, we make an adjustment. It'll still be minus 15 grams of carbs from wherever you started. So, yeah, I think um, it's one of the things. It's, what's more important in contest prep is reliability versus validity. 
So in scientific uh, terminology, validity is whether or not something represents something else, right? So we, we track carbohydrates to track calories more or less and to ensure an adequate amount of, of carbohydrates. And yes, it is, it is true that uh, fiber that has calories is not actually used as carbohydrate. It can't replenish glycogen. It's short-chain fatty acids, right? So it's basically uh, three calories of, of fat from, from certain types of fiber you're getting, believe it or not. Um, so it is not valid to count that technically as the way your body sees it as carbohydrate. But it doesn't matter because it's such a small number. So what's more important is reliability. On a day-to-day -day basis, do you have as small of error as possible in what you're tracking in your calorie intake? So that when you make a change, you know that even if your carbohydrate intake is, is lower or higher and subsequently your calorie intake is lower and higher than you think, it's still the same relative change each time. So that when you stall, you can you know, create an adequate deficit and then keep losing. No, I absolutely love that. And because that's exactly the same as what I do, I'm kind of like on the lines of thought. If it's consistent, if it's kind of always, uh, you don't, it doesn't matter how unreliable, like, like you said, it doesn't matter if it's mm -hmm. kind of accurate or Invalid. not. It's kind of yeah. consistent. It's the same with like your scale. As long as you're using the same scale every time, the same kind of Fitbit that's tracking your steps, it doesn't matter if it's 100% correct. It's more so just that kind of so you can track and measure trends and make changes that are appropriate to that. Because um, I think a lot of people get that if they try and go into the minutia of this fiber has this many calories, this fiber has this many calories, it can really play on your mind. And when we already know you can't be that accurate with your totally calorie intake anyway, because the FDA allow kind of companies to be a little bit out. Um, it's just becomes being anal for no kind of dividend, no, no payoff. Um, Absolutely. a question I do have actually, that's come from that. Have you ever found that clients, especially contest prep ones, when they are dieting have gone so high with their fiber intake, you kind of have to be like, actually, we need to get some carbs that you can use for performance. Have you ever had to been like limiting their fiber intake? Oh yeah, that's. I think that's really common among uh, female competitors too. When their just total amount of carbohydrates is so low, so to feel like they're they're eating, you know, they you end up. I've seen people who are on you know, a hundred grams of carbohydrate, and half of them are from is it from vegetables, you know, uh, and and that's and that doesn't sound that crazy because if you were eating a similar amount of vegetables as a guy who has two hundred grams of carbohydrate, then that's only you know a quarter. Um, but yeah, it can cause problems, you know, depending on whether it's soluble or insoluble fiber uh, and the total amounts, you know, like super high fiber intakes uh, can indeed cause uh, constipation and malabsorption of nutrients. And that's been that's that's pretty well known. So, yeah, I, I typically a good rule of thumb is about uh, 10 grams of fiber per thousand calories is kind of your minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe twice that is the max. And with if within that range you're finding you're, you're constipated or not, play with it, you know. Um, and I, I think sometimes it's worth playing with the low end of it, you know. I, indeed, if you were to look at some of the strategies that are successful for people dropping weight and reducing like gut content, going on a low fiber diet is actually a common one. You know, eating low, low quote unquote low residue diet where it's like stuff like white bread and, you know, just foods that are, are very easy and straightforward to go through the gut. Um, that's not a good way to eat long term for gut health, um, but certainly in the short term, that will result in in being able to lose all the gut bulk, if you will. So yeah, definitely, I, I run into that pretty commonly, especially towards the end of prep, in people with a low total carbohydrate intake, and um, it's it's difficult to deal with because they're they're surviving because they're eating a ton of 
uh, of, of vegetables, but at the same time, it can cause other problems. So um, sometimes you just deal with it, and then you know that once they hit the refeed, things are going to start moving again. So they're going to have like, I've seen people who have a full day of no no bowel movements pretty regularly, you know, or irregularly, I should say. <laughs> um, and then it's basically, you know, their their refeed is when they, they get all the poops going, you know, and you see their 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 body weight often kind of climbs throughout the week and then drops um, as they're just more like the, the traffic jam is just, you know, increasing <laughs> and increasing. Right. That's um, a beautiful analogy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then once once we get out of rush hour and the refeed comes, <laughs> then then things start moving and you kind of see the weight loss. Uh, and that also compounds stress, too. So it's kind of this this vicious cycle where. Um, they're slowly gaining weight because all of their meals are staying in them or, or many of them are, or they, they just like, there's an imbalance between weight going in and weight coming out. Uh, and then that adds stress. So they tend to, uh, be really worried about it and the cortisol going all over the, over the place and that, that makes their weigh-ins less consistent. Um, they're trying to think about things to do. Sometimes they do do things. Um, on the side that they probably shouldn't, you know, they start using, you know, laxatives or enemas, things like that. Um, and so that, that can become a kind of a train wreck real quick. And normally what I do in one of those situations is we do a diet break for one to kind of get things evened out. Um, and we take a break from looking at the scale for that diet break, um, kind of get them mentally refreshed and not worrying about it. Um, those two things together normally results in a lot more regularity and then during that, you know, that period, I'll really take a closer look into what they're actually eating, mm-hmm. uh, or have um, our our dietitian Steve take take a look at it and make some recommendations to see if we can get them to have a more regular, uh, more regularity in general. So, no, that's that's really good because I found the set the same with some of my clients and definitely with myself. Kind of coming towards the end of prep, it's balancing up what's going to allow me to perform best and get the best result versus what's going to allow me to adhere to this kind of calorie deficit um so i think that's where the ability to have those diet breaks to give yourself enough time so that you can make the decisions that are going to be- allow for the best performance the best result so you aren't kind of having to resort to like shirataki noodles with every meal or something outrageous like absolutely. that <laughs> cool. absolutely man uh we get to the next question which again is on the same sort of subject and that is from fabian Kraps, who i think um yeah. is coached by yeah coached by jeff um hey, and- he is basically asking, and you might not, this might be a really short answer. He just says, um, are there any updates to the recovery diet? Have you any kind of, after using it for a prolonged period of time and it's been out there, have you learned anything? Um, has anything changed since you put it there? Um, and if people don't know what the recovery diet is, I'm going to link that below because there's a kind of, well, yet you've got the, the single video with all of you guys and it just lays it out really simply there. Yeah, and we've got a, uh, for people who like to read, we have a PDF version of that as well for a free download on the vault. Um, so yeah, real brief, um, recovery diet is basically um, what we believe is the most uh, effective way to ha- help someone recover post-contest and transition back to the off-season effectively to get back to the goal of gaining muscle as soon as possible without putting on excess body fat. Um, traditionally, bodybuilders... Uh, and all physique competitors, they will gain more weight than they want in a very short time period because they have no plan post-contest besides typically a list of restaurants. Um, And while that takes care of the recovery side of it, it often puts a competitor in a situation where they have to then diet during their off-season, and they're really just quite unhappy. 
and it kind of results in like this, well, I've got to compete again mentality. Uh, and it's like these two larger swings that are, that are suboptimal and cuts, cuts your off season short. Um, and it's not good. Uh, the original response to that was a decent shot at, at solving this problem, in my opinion, was the reverse diet, uh, which a lot of people kind of talked about, probably most popular from, from Lane Norton and co. Um, it evokes a lot of different uh, thoughts in different people, depending on how they've been exposed to it and what they've heard. The most extreme version of it is probably what I would consider also equally bad to get re overshooting and, and then having to diet again in your off season is titrating in very, very small amounts of, of carbohydrate and fat when you're already in a deficit, keeping in a deficit for anywhere from six to 12 weeks because you're only adding, say, you know, 50 calories a week. If you're in a, you know, 500 calorie deficit, that's that's 10 weeks before you're out of a deficit, assuming it doesn't climb up as you add food. Um, so, yeah, that neither one really makes sense. The latter often results in, in a poor relationship with food because you no longer have the goal of the stage keeping you handcuffed to, to being uh, good enough in adherence to get shredded. It's so easy to rationalize not following a strict reverse diet. So then you end up failing and wondering, well, what the hell? I've been dieting for six months. I was on point. I'm perfect. You know, you've got your, your bodybuilder card saying, I know how to work hard. I'm dedicated. And then you feel like I need to tear this up. I can't even follow an extra hundred calories and, and half the cardio uh, post post show. Um, so it kind of creates this, this vicious cycle where people, stick to a reverse diet, but it's still hard. They have trouble rationalizing why they're doing it. They screw up, quote unquote, uh, eat a whole lot, and then they over restrict the next day and they kind of get into this binge purge cycle uh, and then they feel worthless. And, um, and they're very, very stressed out and it can often exacerbate any issues with food or their body image. Um, and it is also misplaced as far as the goal is often to stay as lean as possible while eating as much as possible. And I think that's really only the goal like going into a show right um there's no reason to have veins in your abs unless you're getting on stage uh that's actually quite counterproductive to getting muscle um so the recovery diet now that i've given that that kind of historical perspective is the the middle ground between those two saying right let's get you up to the lower end of your settling point range in terms of body fat expediently uh, there's no reason to muck about. Let's get there because having striated glutes is not useful unless you're trying to win a trophy. It's really just it's the reason why you can't sleep well. It's the reason why you woke up at 4 a.m. It's the reason why all you can think about is food. It's the reason why walking to the bathroom is more tiring than your squats. So let's get the hell out of danger zone, right? Um, so what we typically do is we try to get people to 5 to 10% over their stage weight within uh, one to two months. That's a, a decent kind of overview. And now to answer your question, uh, Fabian, is that uh, the main thing we found from implementing this with our clients is that there's a lot, well, that's a very good general recommendation for everyone. There's a lot of wiggle room here. Um, some people need to gain more, some people need to gain less. Sometimes the time frame can be quite short, uh, or sometimes it can be a little more protracted. And it really just comes down to when do people start feeling human again? Um, and there's a lot of context around when their next competition, you know, if they're going to compete the very next season, things are going to be a little tighter. If they've got no contest in the future in sight, they're going to compete whenever they hell feel like it again, um, then, then yeah, let's get them right back up to where they need to be to start, uh, you know, a slow gaining phase for that's appropriate to their training age. So yeah, I think the big one is just that it is a good place to start a decent rule of thumb, but knowing that uh, your mileage may vary. Mm -hmm.
No, I think that's really good because, I mean, just having the background of the two extremes, kind of the yo-yo and then obviously the really slow trickle-up of food. Um, and I personally can definitely say I, I really like the idea of getting to the lower end of your settling point because kind of I literally just did a post about that today. And I know you were recently on a podcast where you're talking about people trying to sustain too lean a level in which they don't feel productive. And what really kind of hit me home was kind of thinking, okay, the most important thing for us to actually grow muscle, we know isn't the nutritional side, it's the training side. If you can't productively overload, then you're not going to be gaining muscle. So I think if anyone is thinking, oh, I should trick it up, I should do the slow reverse, just think about kind of, are you going to be able to actually benefit? You're just going to go into the gym and it's kind of like uh, banging your head against a brick wall a little bit just for the sake of it almost. Yeah, best case scenario, you're wasting some time. That's basically, worst case scenario is is your, you know, your bone mineral density drops a little bit if you're if you're a woman and you you, you stay amenorrheic. If you're you know may, maybe you piss off your family and friends because you manage to steer every conversation towards the cooking show you watch because you're, you're literally that food focused, you know. So I think uh, yeah, th- there's there's absolutely no reason to, to to take two months to go from five to ten percent body fat. I think that should happen in four weeks, you know, mm-hmm. three at most. So, uh, and then you can slow it down. That's when you start, once you're actually at that, uh, low end of your kind of your body, body fat settling point range, that's when you can take that reverse diet approach. That's yeah. just the reality of, 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 gaining weight for an advanced lifter is if you do it too quick, you just get fat. So you got to slow it down anyway. Um, so yeah. And I think absolutely where I found the, and I think you actually spoke about it when you came over. Um, I think it was presenting with Mike Zordo. So you kind of talked about using the reverse diet almost as a way at the end of your contest prep into your shows. And that's where you ideally want to be, where you are reducing that calorie deficit, which makes sense because we don't want to Mm -hmm. lose as much fat because we haven't got as much fat to lose. So we want to hold on to as much lean tissue as possible. So losing slower. And then at the same time, you're kind of like filling up muscles with glycogen. You're performing better. You're looking better and better. Um, and I managed to do that only this last year because I competed and I didn't plan to actually uh, qualify for finals. So I actually did. So then after my shows and I qualified, I ended up kind of trickling calories up, which was really nice. And I think uh, Berto called it the kind of the bodybuilding taper, which I found yeah. it just it just makes a lot of good sense. And you end up going to your shows feeling kind of almost normal. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it takes care of, well, obviously it doesn't take care of the body fat side of it, but it takes care of the deficit side of it or a good chunk of it. So, I mean, that's, that should always be the goal is eating up into your show, um, you know, and, and, it, and you have to be really conservative with it because you don't want to overshoot and, you know, best case scenario, spill over and then just draw back. You're fine. Worst case, actually gain some body fat and, you know, blur some of those hard earned lines. But um, yeah, that's, that's exactly the time when that hardcore reverse diet would actually be useful is before your diet's over, you know? Um, so you can, and then you probably found this, Steve, that once you've done that, then the transition towards actually gaining body fat is so much easier. You're less crazy. You don't have to make a huge jump in food. You're not doing that much cardio to even drop off in the first place. The transition is smoother, yeah. uh, both mentally and physically. Uh, you just kind of just keep doing what you're doing, but maybe make a bigger jump and you eat out on Saturday and that's pretty much it, you know? So, a hundred percent. That's exactly how I experienced it. It was the, I've never had a bad kind of post contest period. I've always kind of Mm -hmm. managed to feel pretty good. And this was definitely the best I felt. So, um, no, that's fantastic. And I think we covered that really well. Um, we'll go into the next question, uh, which is from Ray Tang. 
And uh, this is asking, what are Eric's opinions on high carb massing? And if he thinks intermediates can grow and build muscle while in a isocaloric state, so that's kind of a separate question. So first of all, if we go through kind of high carb massing, this has probably come about because um, I've had Mike Isretel and Broderick Chavez on the podcast kind of talking about this high carb massing approach. And I think the main reasons for it are kind of we meet our fat minimums. Anything more than that doesn't really provide us any more benefit as a physique athlete. We hit our protein minimums. Anything more than that, again, doesn't really provide us anything more. But more carbohydrates could provide more insulin release under kind of the bell curve, just more total insulin, which is a kind of anti-catabolic, therefore anabolic hormone, um, and then can be used for performance and less likely to be stored as fat itself, but obviously taking total calorie intake under consideration. So, um, yeah, with that said, what are your thoughts on that kind of high-carb approach? Maybe... I think it is, is uh, I'm open to the possibility of that being the case. Um, it's, it's difficult to trick the body like that, man. You know, like, um, basically there's a sliding scale, you know, like the more carbohydrate you eat, um, as a, as a proportion of your total calories in a surplus, the greater proportion of the dietary fat you eat is stored as body fat if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, so if you're eating a, a low carb diet and a whole lot of fat, um, relative, the relative proportion of the fat you eat stored as body fat is small, but because you're eating so much fat, the absolute amount is high. And that's how you're gaining body fat for the most part, because you're using the rest of that. Let's say it's they're 20% is getting stored. 80% you're using as fuel because you don't have carbohydrate to provide, provide as fuel. So then, then let's say we, 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 we turn the dial down on one and up on the other. Carbohydrates now go from low to high and fat goes from high to low. Now we have a very high relative proportion of that fat getting stored as fat, but it's actually quite similar to what it was before in an absolute sense. So you would have to go to the point where your fat levels were, were quite low um, and, and your carbohydrate levels were quite high. And then you're actually starting to have your body go, okay, uh, well, I'm going to do some de novo lipogenesis here, which is a very expensive process. It's like the process to make body fat out of protein and carbohydrates directly is circuitous to say, to say the least. Um, and then, you know, so that would theoretically allow you to eat more and maximize those things you talked about, like insulin, et cetera. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing though, you know, like that, um, that's a lot of carbohydrate in, in, in very low fat. I, I, I wonder if that is optimal for health for one. Um, I also wonder, like you, we made the leap here that insulin is anti-catabolic is therefore anabolic. I don't know. I like it's anti-catabolic. That's for sure. Um, in super physiological doses that might be useful. And there is only so much requirement for carbohydrate to do bodybuilding training, you know, like, there's some absolute, there's a study out there where you're doing this crazy leg workout and I think it results in a 30% depletion of, of glycogen in the legs, you know, and unless you're going to do that like daily, that's not going to require a ton of, of glycogen at least. So the glycogen argument that falls a little flat for me, um, insulin. Yeah, I guess it's good to have a, a fair amount of that floating around if, if, if you, if you're trying to sense the mass, but it is again just anti-catabolic for the most part. Um, yeah, I, I have a tough time 
blanket saying it's, it's useful. I think there are probably some people like highly insulin sensitive who, who would benefit from it. But I think we have enough research now. Um, there's, a, there's an article written by my friend Cliff Harvey. Uh, I believe it is on Brad Dieter's site uh, about that, that talks about um, weight loss specifically and how there's been a handful of studies now that even when they're not, they don't find significant trends, they're, they're non-significant trends in the same direction, that people who are insulin sensitive and insulin resistant respond differentially to different carbohydrate and fat ratios. So those who are insulin sensitive, they lose more body fat or have better adherence on a low fat, moderate carb kind of deficit. I say moderate just because the calories are reduced, so it can't be that high. And then the opposite of that, people are more insulin resistant. They do better on a higher fat, more low moderate carb intake. I would suspect that, well, for one, bodybuilders are not are all going to be kind of in the insulin sensitive category for the most part because they're not overweight, they're active, they're et cetera. Um, even then, there's going to be some variety in a continuum in that scale. And there's probably going to be some people who respond a little better to high carb, low fat and to higher fat, lower carb. Uh, and I would suspect that 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 is probably something worth experimenting with. Um, before just going right, you know, because of insulin, because of glycogen, and because of how we store things, let's just go with the, the high carb, low fat massing approach. Um, because it might actually not be as good for you, you being one individual who's listening who happens to be better, who would be better on a high fat, low carb approach. And you won't know that unless you try. Mm -hmm. With that said, I have also experienced exactly what you're talking about. I've had people who um, we've consistently seen that when we bring fat up, to a certain, seems like a threshold when their carbs are high, they start gaining a disproportionate amount of body fat. And, and, and like, I think those are the people who probably listen to Broderick or Mike and go, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I see. Like when I, when I eat 400 to 500 grams of carbs, if I keep my fat 50 grams or lower, I gain a lot less body fat than if it's higher. And I think that's something I've seen enough times to know that is a thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't, it's, but it's not a thing for everybody because mm -hmm. I haven't seen that consistently with everyone. Um, so I think just, uh, just be aware that there are probably some people who would benefit from this, but your mileage may vary. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's really good because I think a lot of people hear these things and it's kind of, they view it almost as black and white. It's like, okay, high carb, low fat must be the way I have to go. Um, but in yeah. reality, especially as competitors, we're so anal about our nutrition when we are dieting that then to be that anal kind of to keep your fats low and I mean, the, the lowest recommendations kind of uh, 0.5 per kilo. So that's quite low. Um, like yeah, that's low. Similar to what you were kind of talking about. So, um, I mean, that can be quite kind of restrictive for some people. And if you're like not then eating out because obviously it's higher fat foods and you're not enjoying time with like loved ones because of that, or like if someone's baked you a cake and you're refusing to have a slice because you're on this high carb, uh, low fat approach, I think that could probably be more detrimental to then your long-term progress not as just a bodybuilder but as just someone in life um so mm -hmm. yeah i like that you bring it back to just it and we know this at the end of the day with um studies that have come out when we hit protein and we hit total calories that are appropriate normally you don't see much difference there um so yeah try things out for yourselves so yeah great answer there eric and one thing if you don't mind me tangenting mm -hmm. for a second because you talked about it not being black and white and there's, so as someone who's an information provider like you or myself, we, the, the language can change depending on the context. So for example, if I'm going to answer a broad question to a broad audience, 
I have to give the broad answer, right? Which is at the population level, uh, when I'm providing recommendations to everyone, I'm not comfortable recommending a high carb, low fat uh, bulking approach. Um, or at least saying that it's better. I'm not comfortable saying that because the data at the population level, which is, you know, I think like 10 plus meta analyses showing that, like you said, there's really not much of a difference if protein and calories are matched, doesn't support that. Um, but that is different than me saying, right, I coached this dude and he found in the off season when his fat went above 50, if his carbs were over 400, he gained disproportionate body fat. I think a lot of people struggle with the fact that those can both be true, you know, and it's just a difference in understanding how we find truth. Uh, when we look at scientific data, we are looking at populations almost always, unless it's a case study and we're making broad brushstrokes to get in the ballpark of what we think humans respond to. Um, but then after that, you do have to only care about what happens to the individual. So when you're asking Q and A's to people, uh, and you ask these kind of broad questions, you might get an answer like, oh, it doesn't matter, but it could very well matter for you. And the, the solution almost always, uh, unfortunately, is just to experiment with it mm -hmm. and, and have set up similar conditions, change one thing, and take objective notes and look at your training, how you feel, uh, your, your pictures before and after, you know, a couple dexes if you can get it from the same place in the same time, multiple times to get around the reliability issues there. Um, but that, that's as good as it's going to get. And I think as so long as those for those who are listening, you're looking for uh, the one answer to those big questions. Even when you do get the one answer, you know it's wrong because that, that doesn't exist. So someone who says, every, you know, most people or everyone should be doing a high carb, low fat bulking approach or someone who says the opposite, you know, they're both wrong. So even though it might be true for someone. No, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because it, we are all our own study. And I think you brought up a brilliant, um, I, I took a screenshot a while ago, I copied and pasted it into my notes. And I recently shared it on my Instagram, it was talking about kind of um, providing information to the masses and it has to be general. Um, and mm. it's not until you can coach someone and build a rapport, understand one another and really get some data and kind of have feedback with one another. Can you really help them and coach them? Um, and then yeah. when people try and give you specific information about themselves and they're basically asking for free coaching, it just come, kind of comes across as a bit of the wrong way. And so, um, yeah, I just I, I love that. As a, as a coach as well, it kind of made me feel like, okay, I don't feel so bad when I give people answers like it depends and I don't have time Absolutely. to be able to dig into everything with you right now because even if you told me a lot of things, it still wouldn't probably be enough until we assessed it over a period of time. Yeah, and I wouldn't even be able to help my clients because if I, if I treat my 40,000 Instagram followers and my 20,000 YouTube followers and our 70,000, sorry, 20,000 Facebook followers and 70,000 YouTube followers each as... I can be all of your coaches. <laughs> I just need you, each one of you to give me all of your personal information and I'll ask for more and send it to me weekly. Um, I would have no time for sleep, let alone for actually providing useful answers. So the best I can do for a general audience is to tell you, here's what we're, where to start. Uh, it will be different for you compared to everyone else, potentially, maybe not. And here are the ways you can find that out. Here are some useful strategies to adjust that. Here are some common problems, common swaps for, for a movement. Uh, people with this issue typically have this problem. And that's it, I take it as deep as I can. I try to teach people how to learn and then how to, how to make those adjustments and how to figure out what it depends on for them. Um, and I think that's one of the val that that's some of the value of doing these Q and A's is, is you can 
uh, you can see uh, the thought process. It's hopefully a useful um, instruction on, on how to critically think as mm-hmm. a coach. So, no, I think for me as uh, the, the person who runs these, I learn an incredible amount just listening and watching you guys kind of talk things through. Um, it's surprising how much I do learn. So I definitely think they do. And um, we're finished with one last question, which is Sweet. from Holger Dumsky. And he has asked, looking backwards, what are the, his lessons learned through the work with science and which myths are real? So kind of, yeah, looking over time, what have you learned? Um, what are the biggest myths that you've kind of found? So I think this wording threw me off a little bit. Which myths are real? Yeah, he did say which myths are real, as if a myth, <laughs> yeah, it kind of um, sounds a bit funny, that doesn't it? Well, I, I, I wonder if he's asking if if some things that we discarded with science are actually now true. I think you're right. So kind of the old bro myths that are actually, they're not myths. There's some truth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there, there are, there are a few things that um, we've just gotten right uh, as the people have just sort of figured out. Um, Obviously I would say it's, it's tough depending on on how you look at the debate and and where it was formed and who's talking. But if you were to look, if you step back real far and you look at the beginning and the end of like the, the end, the, the, the beginning and the current status of like the protein debate and whether bodybuilders need more protein, et cetera. I would say overall bodybuilders were right, you know, um, because the prevailing uh, message uh, at its strongest point with high protein diets was it's unsafe. You don't need to go over the RDA and um, bodybuilders do not need more. Um, and again, you might be thinking, I just read a thing by Jose Antonio. Yeah, I know that. And I'm a scientist too, et cetera. But if you step back and you're looking at from the 60s till you know 2018, um, there was a good solid chunk of like two decades of that being the consistent message. Um, and it is only, I would say, in the last couple decades that we've seen a number of like, like I remember like 2004, I'm thinking Tipton and Wolf were like, hey, there's you know, peak benefits probably happen around two grams per kg, but there's nothing wrong with going higher than that. Um, and it would maximize any theoretical benefits. And, uh, and then more recently, obviously myself, um, Jose Antonio and, and others are talking about the potential benefits of high protein diets and, and why bodybuilders see what they see. Um, I think the, the magnitudes are obviously slightly at a disparity there. Like some bodybuilders will, will on the high end say like two grams per pound. And I think we're starting to see they're at around one gram per pound in a surplus is where you're at least not getting a benefit for muscle tissue gain. Um, but there is some research, you know, indicating that really high protein intakes are useful for just like kind of same reason we were talking about high carb, uh, low fat massing. It allows you to eat more without gaining a disproportionate amount of body fat, um, which may be, you know, the time it's observed the most might be during contest prep. Like, oh, I just can adhere better to my diet and it works better when I have a high protein diet. Uh, it's all speculation there. But the point is, is that um, the intakes that bodybuilders are suggesting um, were a lot closer to what the the highest recommendations in the literature are now compared to 0.8 grams per kg. So I would say uh, bodybuilders, uh, like awareness and, and observations that high protein diets help them gain muscle uh, or retain muscle were overall true. Mm-hmm. And there's actually no downside to being really high in protein. It just might serve you better as, as carbs or fat, you know? So that's one. Um, I mean, hell, if you want to take it all the way back, like, like way back, we're talking, 
like uh, the 1940s, the there was a prevailing belief that uh, lifting weights would make you muscle bound, uh, have a greater risk of of like heart disease, uh, and was generally unhealthy. And some people, even like respected doctors and scientists, would say that it uh, would potentially take away from your intellectual capacity. <laughs> um, and uh, John Grimmick, uh, kind of one of the, the, the most famous old school uh, bodybuilder slash weightlifters. He competed in the 1936 Olympics in Olympic weightlifting and he also uh, won the, the Mr. America for the first time and it was basically said, okay, we need to institute a rule where you can't compete any more than once or we won't have another winner for years. Um, he did a demonstration in front of a prominent doctor at the time who was the, the biggest proponent of saying, you know, this, this stuff is, is, uh, is, is bad for you and did the splits, did backflips and, and, uh, should just show how healthy he was. And, and that was kind of the, the first time, uh, one of those myths got, got busted publicly and that doctor and then turned around and stopped being all pro, uh, pro cardiovascular training only and anti uh, weight training. It took a while for that to catch on largely. And it wasn't until the sixties where people recognized that, you know, maybe, maybe weight training isn't bad for you uh, and doesn't cause you to be less flexible and, and die. Uh, so, I mean, there was a very, very strong popular uh, belief in the scientific community that, that this weightlifting stuff was, was silly and, and at best, you know, and, and most people said it was, it was bad for you. So, um, yeah, weightlifting being beneficial, high protein diets being, uh, being beneficial. I think those are, those are two big myths that, 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 uh, that are not myths. That's a good one. Uh, more contemporary, um, I would say overall the idea of nonlinear dieting and instituting refeeds and diet breaks seems to be gaining more support, more so in the diet break realm uh, when it's actually investigated. So there was the, the recent Matador study uh, where they would diet for two weeks and take two weeks off and diet for two weeks and take two weeks off that had some pretty impressive results as far as um, assisting with maintenance of energy expenditure and aiding fat loss, um, which is something I think popped up in the like kind of our arena with Lyle McDonald in the early 2000s mm -hmm. and was adopted by bodybuilders. And I would say similarly in the same vein, refeeds. I, we don't have the refeed research yet. Uh, it's all been mechanistic. I'm really looking forward to when um, some research comes out on long-term diets with a weekly refeed or 48-hour refeeds or something like that. So I, I will suspect that we'll actually see some positive outcomes there. I could be wrong, of course, but at the very least, diet breaks um, seem to pan out. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if those are really considered a myth, but they were certainly, they appeared in practice before they had really been tested and trialed in, in research. So that sort of counts, I guess. No, yeah, I really like those. And uh, the only one I was thinking might be one is kind of the, I, I view the old kind of big bodybuilders and they're walking incline on the treadmill and doing their lifts and kind of how their mm. hip became as if, as if lifts was kind oh, of yeah. the wrong thing to be doing. And now it's kind of swapped and it's like, actually bodybuilders, maybe lifts might be the right tool for you to use. That's the only one I was kind of thinking might be there. That's actually a really good one. Yeah. The, I would say the, the hit data hasn't reversed itself, but people's interpretation of it, yeah. you know, I think the biggest, um, the biggest mistake that was made was that lists started to get clumped in with endurance training, uh, which is 
it just shows you how little bodybuilders do cardio. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if they think walking on an incline treadmill watching Sports Center is the same as running a marathon, then this goes to show you how, how much they don't actually do real cardio. So, yeah, I think that, that was the, the big issue there was that it became an either or. Like, it's either you're going to do, we looked at all this concurrent training research. Oh my God, it's making people lose muscle or not actually lose, but not gain muscle as quickly or gain strength as quickly. Um, and uh, then we saw that hit gives you this amazing calorie burn that ended up being not so amazing, uh, but it's at least time efficient. Uh, and then we look back and we go, oh, wait, no one's doing endurance training. People are not running marathons during contest prep. They're walking, you know, they're cycling. Um, so we're, we're, we're basically calling that the devil when it's not even something people are doing. So it was a straw man argument from the, from the start, in yeah. my opinion, um, which was the issue. But now we're actually getting some data showing that, yeah, there are problems from doing really high intensity cardio in conjunction uh, with resistance training. There's actually some data that'll be coming out pretty soon from Zerdos' lab. Uh, that there's an in agreement with that, but you basically have the choice. But just remember that if you're doing, yeah, if you're doing high intensity anything, it's going to have high recovery. So that, that's a, that's a good one, Steve. Cool. Uh, and actually, I'm waiting for the studies to come out on uh, tilapia thinning the skin. That's the one I'm waiting for. Mm, yeah, <laughs> we know. Well, we know that one's true. You know, that, that's at the top of the evidence pyramid. You know, that's just the the we just know. Like we've seen tilapia thin the skin too many times for that not to be true. I just need science to confirm my bias at this stage. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Eric Helms. It has been a brilliant chat again. I always enjoy these. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening um, and all the questions that have come through. And if you do want to get your question across, um, hopefully this is going to be a kind of a long-standing thing or at least in the, the next kind of few months that we'll be able to do this as long as Eric's happy to. And if you do want to... Until get... Steve gets tired of me. <laughs> um, Fickle and... boy. Yeah, I'm fickle. I'll just go doctor to doctor. Uh, maybe That's I'll right. get Zildos next. <laughs> uh, so if you do want to get your questions in, um, there'll be a link below. You can join our free Facebook group uh, in which there is kind of a really cool community in there with yeah some really fantastic names, at least, um, asking good questions. So, yeah, once again, thank you, Eric. Um, I know everyone else is going to be absolutely um, kind of so happy that you've been able to do this again. Um, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, mate.